technology is a tool. So looking back in 1994, 95, when we started um, when we started this gallery, we started out looking at it as a tool. We didn't think that we were going to sell art online. And 25 years later, the takeaway then, which was like, you got to get people in front of art. You're not going to sell it online. You got to get people in front of art to get them to buy it. Hello and welcome to Art Goes On, a podcast featuring art people on how they keep the art world running. Here they will share their vision of the present and a glimpse of the future. I'm your host, Pierre de Montesquieu, recording from Paris, France, so please, pardon my English. Before we start, as we try to make this show interactive, here's a quick reminder to follow our Instagram account at AskArtGoesOn, where you'll be able to ask questions to upcoming guests. Now, on to today's show. I'm happy to receive Cornel DeWitt today. Cornel has 25 years of experience in the art world, where he had a wide range of positions. He started as a gallery owner, has been the director of the Pulse Contemporary Art Fair, had different business and partnership roles at Artnet, or Collectrium. He lately founded Daily Plinth, which is the first video platform exclusively dedicated to content produced by the art world, and is also the acting managing director of Bauer Blue, a digital agency for visual arts. Hi, Cornell. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm fine, thank you. So, Cornell, how art is going for you? It seems strangely distant, but uh, something that uh, we're thinking about all the time. It's hard to, um, it's hard almost to imagine uh, museums and galleries and art fairs and all of that sort of thing. It seems ages ago, but it's uh, at the same time, it's, uh, it's an exciting time as well, I think. There's a phrase that's been bandied about uh, quite a bit that is an interesting one because it generally has something of negative connotations, but Uh, in a time like this, I feel like it's fairly apropos, which is shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. And I think that it's interesting to see how, um, how artists and uh, museums, nonprofits, galleries, auction houses, it's been very interesting to see how everybody responds. And so it's, uh, it's a very exciting time uh, as well. As you've said, crisis can also be turned into opportunities. What are the best cases you may have observed? Well, it's interesting because um, the, the, the thing that keeps coming up is the online viewing rooms. I think that's a really interesting, uh, interesting case, both that art galleries are doing it and, and that uh, the art fairs are doing it. And it's a perfect example because, you know, for starters, as, as uh, you know, everybody has pointed out, online viewing rooms are just a page on, on a website. They're websites, they're web pages. Galleries and art fairs are doing more interesting things with them. But what the, uh, the perfect, what the example is, is that art fairs needed to have integrated selling and promoting platforms for their galleries years ago. And they should have done it years ago. I, I was, it was something I was pushing for when I was at Pulse. I've told other gallery directors and other gallery uh, uh, art fair directors, I've been talking to people about this for years, that it should absolutely be integrated to have the online world and the real world should be integrated and galleries were doing it to a certain degree art fairs were just it was 
it's complicated. There's, you know, do you, there's a lot of complicated questions you have to sort out for, for art fairs, but it should have been done years ago. And so now finally, they're in a situation where they have to do it so that they do something. And, and I think that that's being done, you're seeing that in a, lot of, uh, in a lot of cases. Galleries are really looking hard at their business models now because they have to do it. Um, they're looking at why do they do so many art fairs, for instance, you know, it's this circular, it's this circular kind of thing. Galleries are looking at what's, uh, what's most important to them. They're thinking, uh, they're, they're, they're taking a, a breather to figure out, okay, how do we get people to come back into galleries when people can come into galleries again, rather than just being on this treadmill of like, okay, what's the next art fair? What's the next art fair? So yeah, I think if you were to ask any, any gallerist or museum director or, or art fair director, anybody out there, if this finances aside and the existential threat aside, if the changes that are being made are going to be a net positive or not, without fail, provided that these organizations survive, which I think that um, the majority will, although there will certainly be uh, casualties, some that I'd probably be okay with, some that would be tragic. That aside, I think that, that, you, that everybody's gonna come out in a better place, having really given a lot more careful thought to their business models, how they leverage technology, how they interact with people, how they present their, their art and uh, everything like that. You've worked online for 25 years. You co-created one of the first online galleries in the 90s, worked for Artnet, for Collectrium. What was missing 25 years ago that exists now? And what is still missing today? That's a very good question. Uh, well, it, what I would say is that it's not, what's missing isn't something technical. What's missing is there is still 25 years later, there's this, I still feel that there is this fundamental misunderstanding of what technology in the art world, I say is for, because this is what I believe, And, but as I'm telling other people, I said, this is what technology should be for, because it is still very much missed, which is that technology is a tool. And, um, you know, so looking back in 1994, 95, when we started, um, when we started this gallery, you know, we were used, we, we started out looking at it as a tool. Uh, it was just that it was a marketing, it was, you know, as a marketing tool. We didn't think that we were going to sell art online. We had artists that we were passionate about, that we were excited about, and we wanted to share it with a broader audience. And we were in the middle of Colorado. There was no market there for art. So we wanted to reach where the market was, in New York, London, wherever. And because we didn't have the resources, you know, I was just out of college at the time. Um, we didn't have the resources to build it into Artsy or Artnet, for that matter, or, or anything like that. We gave it a crack for a little while. It, uh, it got some attention, but we never made any sales. And so we immediately fell back into this kind of more traditional DIY mode of where we would do uh, a salon style show at somebody's home. You know, somebody would invite us over, we'd bring some artists, some photographs, or we'd do a temporary pop-up show. We'd rent a space for a weekend or borrow somebody's space for a weekend. We did shows in, in coffee shops and all this sort of thing that got people in front of art. And 25 years later, the takeaway then, which was like, you gotta get people in front of art. You're not gonna sell it online. You gotta get people in front of art to get them to buy it. 
25 years later, that hasn't changed. That's still the reality is that you got to get people in front of art to, to, to sell art. So to the question of what's missing is I, I st it's, I'm still flabbergasted every day when there's this notion um, and, and you're seeing it again now where people are saying, oh, this is the end of the, this pandemic is the end of people gathering to view art. Gathering to view art survived the, the, the Black Plague. <laughs> it survived the 1918 flu pandemic. You know, it survived 9-11. It, it survived, you know, it's, it, it's not the end of it. A, a friend of mine five years ago sat me down and said, oh, well, in five years, there's not going to be any more art fairs. They're just going to disappear because it's going to be replaced by VR. Everybody's just, you, you, VR is incredible. You know, you can put on this VR mask and it's like you're standing in front of the artwork. Well, VR is great and it's really interesting what people are doing with it. AR is great and there's some interesting projects that are being done with it. All of these things are great tools, but anytime somebody is advocating for something like that, anybody, anytime somebody says that they've got something that's gonna revolutionize the art market or revolutionize the art viewing experience or disrupt it or, or change it radically or, or anything like that, you know, I immediately think about two things. One is that I think, well, Clearly, this person has never had this incredible experience of standing in front of a work of art and just being moved to tears by it. They, they clearly haven't had that experience because then they, they, if they had, they would understand that you can't replicate that. It's irreplicable. The second thing I then think is like, okay, so what is their vested interest in changing the art market? Do they stand to make money because they're going to, because their VR tool is going to be the next big thing is like, Blockchain is, you know, is, are they promoting a blockchain tool? Is that, you know, whatever the case may be. All of these things are tools, but what has not changed in 25 years is people's lack of understanding that, that's, that, that technology is a tool and that it should be used in the service of art rather than trying to replace a, a fundamental art experience. There's a kind of paradox in the art world because it seems to be reluctant to change sometimes. But there can also be a huge rush on novelties or trendy things, such as blockchain or Instagram. How can we explain that? I think that there's a lot of different factors at play uh, in that case. One is uh, there is, a, you know, you mentioned Instagram in particular. There is a, uh, a self-perpetuating cycle with something like Instagram. You know, something gets, gets some traction on Instagram, it becomes more popular and everybody wants to try it. And then, then everybody's on Instagram. Oh, then it's popular on Instagram. So it must be something, it must be something real. And it just kind of snowballs like that. To me, latching on to these various, like blockchain, uh, Instagram, uh, the web, you know, whatever the case may be, however broad or focused the, the, This, this thing is, is that it's more of a sign of the, the general uh, notion that, um, that, there are, that there's something that people need to change. People recognize that something's not right. Something's not working as it is. And that's absolutely accurate. Um, and so I think it's important to look at the things that are consistent through all of those. And the one thing that comes up all the time is the idea of democratizing the art market bringing transparency to the art market and that sort of thing. Those are absolutely accurate. And it's, and it's true that those things need to happen. But the problem is that there's this constant push-pull and it's not just a market forces thing. It's that, it's that, you know, the art market and the art world in general is predicated on connoisseurship 
on taste and all these sorts of things. And so the idea of a mass market, something that appeals in art is anathema to being able to structure something else to have value, right? And so people talk about how the, the problem with the art market is these sky high prices and, and all that sort of thing. That's the, the top of the market isn't the problem. Let billionaires play with their money and their, their favorite artists, however they, they want to do it. The problem with the art market is that it's built like an obelisk, you know, and everybody's scrambling to get onto this, this bottom. Or maybe you should say, maybe a more apropos would be to say that it's like a ladder. And everybody's trying to scramble to get onto the bottom rung so they can start working their way up. The, the reality is that the, the market, the problem is that the market needs to be built like a, a, a pyramid. And the top of the market, rather than saying, oh, all that underneath me is just shit. And that's why I'm worth so much is because everything else is crap, <laughs> you know? And they need to stop that kind of nonsense. And be like, hey, you know, this, this person that's coming in here and buying a $500 painting or a $20 painting at, uh, at the affordable art fair or on Saatchi art or any of these larger market websites and, and like the affordable art fair, you know, it's great that maybe somebody will, will show up there and say, Hey, this is, and they, they get hooked on collecting and that's, and they, you get more people into buying art that will stabilize the rest of the market. It's, I mean, it's like econ 101 here, <laughs> you know, that, you, that you've got to have a, uh, a stable base to uh, to your market, and that's but there's a, but there's a real the art market and the art world in general really struggles with uh, the acceptance of the lower end of the uh, the lower end of the market. And for 20 years, the market became huge, also because of those small actors. More and more people are also showing up as artists, and as you've said, a lot of them want to reach the top. One of the keys to that is to participate in art fairs that are maybe 300 each year. And often, 50% or so of a gallery turnover relies on art fairs. As we may not have art fairs for a few months now, it is an important threat for galleries. But as galleries need to adapt and maybe change their business model, can it be an even bigger threat to art fairs? It's a very good one because Generally speaking, I mean, and I'll and I'll predicate it by saying that I that I love art fairs. I'm definitely one of those types, kind of like Kenny Schachter, where I have a real love hate relationship. I I, I hate that I love them, <laughs> you know. And um, and as you know, I was director of an art fair for a while. Um, but even you know before that, I was always a fan of it because I I and I think that part of that comes from though having a a real practical view of why they are what they are, which is very different from other people's views. Most people, you know, really dislike art fairs because it's this scene and they hate the scene and they think that the scene is why the art fair is what it is, that, that, that that's why it exists is because of this feeding frenzy that it has become. And that's not really accurate I, from my view. I, I think that the art fairs are what they are because of Yes, there's a lot of excess in them. Yes, there's a lot of noise around them. Yes, there's a lot of players that are there just for the, you know, or bit players that are there just for the noise and just for the scene and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, art fairs don't exist for that. They don't, 
art fairs don't exist because they sprung up around these parties. Art fairs exist because they filled a need in the market. And they are, they are a direct result of the, the spread of the internet. And so art fairs are no sooner going to disappear than the internet is going to disappear. Because the internet, what the internet made possible is that all of a sudden almost, and, you, and when you think back, you know, in, in through the mid to late 90s, let's say, and then when art fairs exploded in the early 2000s, it really was, from the perspective of an art market system that's been around for hundreds of years, it really was all of a sudden that this happened, which is that all of a sudden, a collector in Hong Kong could connect with a, with a gallery in Paris and be looking at an artist from Los Angeles, right? And at the end of the day, the collector wants to meet the gallerist, see if they like them or not. They want to see the art in person, maybe meet the artist as well. And the art fair is the only way that that can happen. That all of those pieces of the puzzle in selling art that have now suddenly been connected by the internet, the art fair is the only reasonable place for that to take place with any amount of efficiency. And so, you know, so until somebody comes up with another way that that same thing can happen, <laughs> that art fairs are what we've got. Yeah, sure, of course they can be improved enormously and we're now seeing a huge improvement in them by, this by the increase in their online capacity. And it's gonna be interesting to see what, what happens to that. It will be interesting to see when art fairs come back, particularly if they come back with much more of a slow drip due to, this, uh, due to the coronavirus, if a lot of the noise would, on the sides would fall away. And I know that nearly everybody would would appreciate that if the if this uh, if if a lot of the nonsense, a lot of the pressure, uh, if a lot of that would um, would start to fall away. But art fairs aren't going to disappear, generally speaking. So that that's the first part of that equation that I think is really important to understand is that is that the art fair itself serves an absolutely critical role in the market that is not going to disappear. The second part of it, though, and yes, I, the world needs fewer art fairs, absolutely. But what I've said for a long time is that it's not so much that the world needs fewer art fairs, it's the world needs better art fairs. And so we're starting to see that. Now, there is a, a great strength in, in the regionality, and I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens to regional art fairs. I hope that regional art fairs will survive and thrive, and I hope that they are able to survive by leaning into being regional art fairs. Um, and I, and I, as an example, I would look back to say, what is this, 2020, to say 10 years or so ago, Art Brussels was really quite a strong regional art fair. They had, there was a strong collecting base there. They got good galleries in there, but it was still very much a regional art fair. Art Chicago did that. And I think Expo Chicago has done a great job in terms of achieving a balance between being international enough and being a big enough player to attract enough attention to itself, which it has to do, while still really being focused on, uh, on being a regional fair. But I think that that's going to be um, one thing that will help fairs, and I, and I hope that, they'll be, that the regional ones will be able to survive by focusing more on being regional. Now, then the, the final part of that equation is all the satellite fairs. That's where things get really weird, you know, where you go to Miami in December, and there's two dozen art fairs going on there. And so my, myself and most people I know maybe go to a half a dozen of those, maybe. So what's gonna to happen to all these other fairs? What's gonna happen is that, is that there's still this, obviously a hierarchy. And so all of these galleries that are doing those fairs, that are doing the third tier uh, type of uh, 
of satellite fares, they're going to have to make a decision, okay, is this worth it anymore? And for a decade or 15 years, most of them obviously made that decision that it was worth it. Uh, you know, the thing you have to keep in mind is, is that if there are, let's say there's 20 fares in Miami, on average, they're pretty small, so probably under uh, 100 galleries each. So I guess that there's maybe just, you know, pulling numbers out of my head, there's maybe 1,500 galleries exhibiting in fairs during, uh, during Art Basel Miami Beach. I'm sure there's, somebody's crunched the number somewhere. You can probably look it up. I don't have it at hand. But there's tens of thousands of galleries around the world, you know, and, uh, and I know that for a fact that a lot of these smaller second tier or third tier fairs have an enormous turnover. They're just always like looking for that person who's going to take that bet, take that chance that maybe that, you know, they, they could show up, they spend their 10 grand or whatever, and they, maybe they'll, they'll, something will catch fire. Most of the time, nothing happens and they don't come back and that's it. Um, and there's a real churn there. Whether galleries are going to be willing to keep doing that, the, these, uh, these smaller galleries and other areas, I would guess a lot will because, you know, hope springs eternal for the gallerist. You know, I, what is it that, uh, that as well, that the art market uh, report, uh, Claire McAndrews' uh, report with Art Basel, you know, they said that the average turnover for uh, an art gallery is like $40,000 a year. Um, you know, that's uh, talk about hope springs eternal. You know, it's like all these are people who love art and they want to share art, but they're terrible business people and they're not making any money at it. So it's like, so is this going to cause everybody to just kind of throw in the towel and pull the plug on these ventures? I, I, I hope not. You know, I don't want people to stop doing that, but man, there's going to be some uh, people wrestling, a lot of galleries wrestling with some real realities and uh, some hard realities. And there's going to be a lot of art fairs that are that are wrestling with those hard realities. But I do think that there's a lot of, um, you know, that the, the, the higher end of the, the, of the, I don't want to say the higher end of the market because we are like Nada is a great fair. Untitled is a great fair. Pulse is a great fair. You know, those, uh, those fairs, they're not the top end of the market by any means. The art on paper fair. I love that one, you know, that the um, print dealers association does in, uh, does in Miami. So yeah, so there's, it's, um, it's gonna be interesting to see what happens. I, I don't think it's it's gonna be as apocalyptic as a lot of uh, pundits are are saying, but it's gonna be some. There's gonna be some real culling. So as you've said, art needs the public engagement and to be experienced in real. What was the point in building Delphint, an online video platform? So, um, it, you know, it came from feedback from clients uh, and talking to galleries talking to institutions, um, when people started making videos and finally the technology caught up to where making videos was much simpler, cheaper, and easier than it was five years ago, 10 years ago. It was much better quality streaming, uploading, you know, with speeds and, and the capacity like that. Um, and people loved it. It's a, it's a very visual thing. Uh, Instagram fueled a lot of it as well because, you know, you started seeing more uh, people started with stories. People were doing more moving images. Same thing on Facebook. Facebook started leaning into video. And so it comes to this. It's part of this question for galleries and institutions uh, of all stripes who are making videos of like, okay, so I've made this. So what do I do with it? And all of them were looking at this situation where, okay, I made this video. It was great. The artist loved it. Audience loves it. 
So I put it on uh, our website and everybody that goes to our website sees it there. Put it on social media. Everybody that follows us on social media can see it there. And I put it on YouTube and it's one of 300 hours of video that were uploaded in that minute to, uh, to, to YouTube. And it just, it just disappears once it goes on to YouTube. It's very challenging to build, as you well know, an audience on YouTube that is meaningful and it can be very disheartening to, uh, to people who are you know, on YouTube seeing, okay, I've got 100 views, I've got 1,000 views, I've got 10,000 views, figuring out what the meaning of that is. And so we saw a need for a place in between where we could select and promote uh, what we felt was the, some of the best videos out there. And then in addition, could be supported by a fairly straightforward, basic uh, native advertising model. So we saw a need, a demonstrated need from potential viewers. To use an ex another example, you know, for myself, I would be, if I go on YouTube and I dig around and I find a video that I like and I watch it, and then YouTube says to me after I finish watching it, it says, uh, oh, if you like this video, then you'll love this uh, Peppa Pig video. Because, you know, my daughter watched a Peppa Pig video before I watched, I watched this video. This is a bit of a digression, but I find this endlessly fascinating um, from my perspective. So I built a, a, my own YouTube channel that isn't my own, and I'm very, very careful about what I watch on it, what I like on it, what I put into, and it's just, you know, what I view as daily plinth caliber work. You know, good producers, good video that's watching that, and I don't let the kids or the family watch videos on that uh, while I'm logged in to that user. I've spent now three years effectively training the algorithms that are watching my usage on that, um, on that channel. And it is incredibly rare that it, that it recommends something for me that I like. It never recommends something for me that I like that, I, that I'm not already aware of. It has never done that. And, but very rarely it will actually, you know, when, I, when, I'm, when I'm on there and I'm looking for content for Daily Plant, it will very rarely actually recommend something. Because that's just how huge the universe is on YouTube. It's, I, I literally, I've spent three years training the, algorithm, the YouTube algorithms, trying to train the YouTube algorithms to recommend something that would be apropos for Daily Plant and it can't do it. Um, so, that, so, that, so that's just, so what it comes down to is that you got to do it yourself, you know, and that's what, that's what art is about. And that's what loving art is about. Everybody has their own taste. Everybody has their own way of discovering it. And you have to, you, you have to just lean into what you can do with that rather than trying to say, you know, trying to dictate taste or trying to dictate uh, technology to do what, you, you know, to, to do these things. Technology, is, again, is just a tool to do what you want with it or to, to try to get it to do what you want and, and to, fill, uh, to fill the needs that you have rather than being like, oh, okay, well, I'll just trust what the algorithms say. So that was the challenge with, uh, with Daily Plinth is that we wanted to uh, fill this need. We saw a, a need in the market and, and we built it. And then the second part of, the, of that equation is that we didn't then think, okay, the best thing to do now is go out and raise a million dollars and throw a million dollars at it and see what happens. That would mean losing control of the company and probably throwing away a million dollars. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's not... It's not the way we were interested in, in running it. You know, they, statistically, studies showed that 
the most important factor in the success of a business is, is, uh, is timing. And, and so if you throw a million dollars in running something for its first year, for six months or whatever, odds are you probably haven't gotten the timing right um, because that's the hardest part of the equation and it's not gonna work out. And then you're gonna need to raise another million dollars to get you through your next year and raise another and keep going. The next thing you know, like I said, you, you lose, lost control of your company. You got some guy from a wedding website telling you how to buy art. It's just like, that's, that, that's kind of a, that's not a model that interests us. We felt it was best to keep it lean. The idea was that we needed to make sure that it could survive as long as possible, that it was sustainable, that we kept control over it. And so it's, the reality is it's, it's, you know, we, it's, it's a nights and weekends project for, uh, for my business partner and I. We've spent almost no money on it to keep it running. And it's only because of that that we are still in control of it and it's still running. If we'd been, you know, if we leveraged ourselves or, or spent our life savings on it or whatever, it would have been, you know, we would have been sunk. So yes, yeah, so we're still at it and it's still, uh, it's still doing its thing. It, it works exactly as advertised. It's a great place to, uh, to discover and promote uh, video content from the art world. It's very simple. So we understand that Daily Plint is not Netflix or Disney Plus. But as those platforms boomed even more under COVID, did you notice the same pattern on Daily Plinth? And otherwise, as a digital media consultant, did you notice any new trends or behavior in the art world? Yeah, that's a good question. It, you know, um, I wouldn't say that we've seen, you know, any kind of particularly notable uptick in people sitting around watching Daily Plinth. The reality is that all of us are very busy, busier than ever in, in certain ways with managing, you know, life and work and 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 business and everything like that people are definitely making more video content and you know and in our advising and uh the work that i'm doing for instance with bauer blue which is a uh, a digital media production and uh and consulting uh and strategy uh firm there's people people need are looking for answers they don't know how to do this and people are still asking the same questions which is interesting they they're saying okay well we can make a video and now what? Now what do I do with it? And uh, people are still struggling for, uh, for audience for it. I think that the misconception uh, that there is right now is that everybody's just sitting around looking for, looking for more content. And uh, the question that we advise our clients to take is, is, is this, if I'm thinking about making something, is this something that someone would still want to watch even if they weren't quarantined? And uh, unfortunately, I do, there's a lot out there that I don't think fits that uh, bill. But on the other hand, that people are trying new things. And, that's, and to me, that's always a net positive. It may not, you know, galleries and museums and uh, other organizations that are trying these things, some are great, some are not so great. Hopefully some of them will, will last, uh, will, they'll keep doing, even some things that are great, they're not gonna keep doing. And so I, so I think that, uh, you know, the, the experimentation is great to see, the openness to new ideas is great to see, um, and I really, uh, I'm really enjoying that. My advice would be to keep trying new things, but it still does need to come from that perspective of, okay, why am I doing this? And is this something that I need to be doing now? Is this something that I would want to see if we weren't quarantined? You know, and from a producer's own perspective, rather than thinking, okay, what can I make that would appeal to a million people or to 
a thousand people. Think about, okay, I'm gonna make this for this particular person. And sure, that person can be a typecast. It can be, uh, you know, not a specific person, but a, but a type of person. Make something that that person wants to watch um, or that that person wants to do or to read or, or whatever. So th there are some really interesting things that are being put out there and, um, and I think people can do, uh, are, are, are finding new solutions. Okay, a few short questions before we wrap this up. And one from the audience. Delphine seems to see you as a person that totally switched online. And she wants to know if, as a former gallery owner or art fair director, you don't miss the in-real experience. I do miss it. And I've, I've gone back and forth, you know. Um, one of the reasons I joined an art fair was, you know, I was doing a lot of consulting at that point in time leading up to that. And, and I, I love being hands-on. But there's a need to fill, and I have, uh, you know, I, I think that in terms of my, from the perspective of my career, I do have something of an outlier's perspective on all of these things. I, I'm not quick to jump on bandwagons. I tend to be very skeptical of, uh, of new things, but I think that that gives me a, uh, I think gives me a better perspective on these things. But yeah, I, I do miss things, but the flip side of that is, is that, you know, when I made the decision to start focusing on these things. One, it was to fill a need, as I mentioned, that I have a particular perspective on. But the reality is, is like, look, I've got art hanging in my apartment that I'm, that I'm lucky to have. And most of my closest friends are, are artists. And, you know, my, and I, I love going to art fairs. And when I, you know, and I do go to museums and galleries when I'm not in quarantine. And so I, I feel very much like my life is filled with art. And, and I love that. I don't feel like I need to to be in a gallery to uh, to have that experience, but uh, but sure, yeah, I, I think about galleries a lot. I think about art fairs a lot. I think about museums a lot, and yeah, there's there's aspects of that of that you know working with it hands on that yes, I miss. But yeah, I don't I don't feel like I'm I'm, I'm devoid of real uh, real life art in my in my real life. And my last question: Is there an artwork that for you reflects what we are living today? On a metaphorical level, um, or not not metaphorical, like you know, everybody's everybody's talking about like the scream, like, ah! but um, but for me, it actually the the artwork that I that I come back to now is the same artwork that I've come back to for 25 years, which is uh, Jasper John's uh, American flag, because that was it. It has a lot of personal meaning. Uh, to me in terms of, you know, when I started working in the art business and falling in love with art to begin with and all these sorts of things. And it was the situation was that uh, I'd been familiar with it. I'd seen it in textbooks. And, you know, again, this is where this is the, the early 90s at the, at the time when I was in school, seen it on slides projected in darkened uh, uh, classrooms um, and all of that sort of thing. And then I'll just, I'll never forget the first time I stood in front of it in person. And it moved me to tears. And it was right about the time I was moving to New York. Um, it, was in, it was in the Jasper Johns retrospective at the MoMA. And so everything has hinged on, on that. that like, that's, the, that's why I'm in the art business, is I want everybody to have that experience, to stand in front of a work of art and to be, and to be moved to tears uh, over it for whatever the, the case may be. And that, that was... Um, uh, you know, and it had, had nothing to do with patriotism. It had nothing to do with, with any of that kind of thing. It was just, it was just this such a particular iconic work and that experience that I had in front of it. And that's what, um, 
That's why I'm in the art business. So it's a kind of advice to go back to basics. Yeah, back to basics for sure. <laughs> Cornell, thank you for staying with us today and walking us through another aspect of the art world. And hopefully we'll meet in flesh when all that ends. Thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was a pleasure talking. Uh, very interesting questions, thoughtful questions. And, and yes, I, I do hope that uh, we can all meet uh, in person. We can meet the art, we can meet each other. Uh, and hopefully it's not too long. Thanks. Bye, Cornell. Thanks a lot, Pierre. It was a pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Art Goes On. If you liked what you heard, feel free to follow and share the show on Apple, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or on YouTube. Leave a rating or review to help people find the show. Thanks again.